As we start to wind down this second season of the podcast, I've often wondered where the narratives of each guest was taking us and especially what lessons I was hoping to share in each individual's entrepreneurial journey and what I hope that is taken away from each episode. On this episode, my guest is Efua Akumanyi, who studied computer science and artificial intelligence in 1998, so a little ahead of the curve, but especially, I guess, keeping in with the theme of upskilling and the ability to find your niche in a marketplace that otherwise seems prescriptive or that seems to mean that there is no room for young black Africans. I hope you find this episode enlightening and also the boldness that comes from your ability to embrace your interests and what you hope to pursue. Welcome to another episode of Third Culture Africans. I am your host, Zezo Oriaki Sal. I created the show as a resource for our community of Africans and African diaspora. A safe and honest place to share, inspire, motivate, and most importantly, celebrate those in our communities doing purposeful work and shifting the needle on our culture. Your support is invaluable to the show, so please subscribe or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and leave us a review on your favorite streaming platform. You are valid, you are strong, and you are just getting started. Hi, Afira. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. Hi, thank you for having me. So we were having a little chit chat about pretty things and I was saying I'm a sucker for pretty things in all forms, actually. But I guess I I give each guest an introduction before we dive well into the episode. But I would have you down as a digital entrepreneur and coding genius, <laughs> as it were, based on, on your career and your specialty. You founded Furnishful, which is a shopping discovery site for furniture and homeware, and have been doing that now for the last five years. But prior to that, you cut your teeth working as a specialist developer, to be specific, a .NET developer for House of Frasier, St. John's Ambulance, and a few other sort of heavy hitters. And then you're also the head of tech for a nonprofit, which is coding black females in the UK. We'll probably touch on all aspects of that at some point, but I hope I haven't left anything out. Um, I think that's a really good summary. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Rewinding to early days, your parents are Ghanaian, so are you, but moved to the UK when you were two. And so know nothing else really, but, you know, a UK experience. Did you find part of being, I guess, first generation from immigrants, your parents immigrating to the UK, influential in how you have navigated your career so far? Um, Yeah, I think so. I think it's kind of almost it's been a really big factor because although I arrived here when I was two, both my parents' formative years were in Ghana and and we came over with them having already had established careers back in Ghana and very well educated and that's what they expected from their children. So yes, outside of my house, when I walked out of my door, I might have been in London and the UK, but inside the house, 
it's gone basically. So you are expected to excel in whatever you do. You are very much focused on education, very loving, all of those things, but definitely steered towards, I mean, there wasn't a question whether I was going to go, if any of us, my, my siblings or, or me, were going to go to into further education, it was expected. It was almost like, you know, when you're at university, rather than if you'd like to go to university. So that helped in that I knew what my path was pre-uni. And then I suppose the nature of wanting to work hard and excel, it, it has helped in every aspect of my career because you always want to do your best and you're always expected to do your best and it becomes second habit then to always want to put extra in. So it's guided me in many areas and, and it's gotten me where I am now and it allowed me to do so many different things. I love how you said home was Ghana. Oftentimes I think we all say that, right? Like at home. And I think thinking now as a parent and growing up or watching your child grow up in a different society, knowing the adult context of disparity in resources, etc. I hear that now and I understand it a little better and I get the importance of it. But I digress into how do you begin your career in computer science and AI? So you go to University of Sussex and you pick a predominantly male degree with no real representation at the time of females, let alone black females in AI and computer science. Obviously the dawn has arrived now and those topics are on the tips of everyone's tongues and we're seeing that translate even into consumer experiences. But at the time, what inspired you to pick that as your degree of choice? Yeah, I think it's interesting because I actually have much more of an artistic inclination. I prefer reading books and, and languages and art. And growing up, that's kind of really what I wanted to do. I wanted to do kind of really arty things. But I, as the youngest child in, in my house growing up, my siblings had already taken the subjects that I was interested in. So I was like left thinking, what am I going to do? Am I going to do, I can't do art, my sister's doing that. I can't do biology, my next kind of love as well. My brother's doing that. Um, what am I going to do? So I decided it was either between psychology or <laughs> or computers because nobody was doing computers at all. And so I chose that basically because not thinking about the future, really, not thinking it was going to be super, just it was going to explode the way it was, it did and it has, or it was going to be such a required field. I chose it really because it made me stand out a little bit in my family and it was a path that I felt I could carve alone. So I didn't think about whether it was predominantly male or female or who I was going to see on the course. And I didn't even think about the fact that I'd need so much more kind of maths, essentially, which wasn't predominantly my background. In fact, it was, um, I, I did psychology A-level and English A-level, as I said, and biology A-levels. But I chose it just to carve my path and just walk, do something that nobody else had done in my family. So that's how I started. Did you have an understanding of what that meant, though, for where the world was going at the time? Or was it just oh, absolutely cool. no idea? I was lucky enough that my dad, see, my dad is a journalist and he worked for the London Press Association for many years. And so he was always and, and actually on the tech desk. So he was always quite at the forefront of the new technology that was out there and he was always keen to introduce us to it. So he brought a PC into our house, he always brought us gaming devices and things like that. 
I was really keen on us to learn digital skills. So he was enc- he was encouraging. He always encouraged me to to uh, try and play around with with tech. And so I I did have a keen interest in, in tech, but more engineering because of the creativity you could do with engineering. So I like to build stuff and build toy cars. My brother's toy cars. Me and he, we. I remember going to. I'm going to say BT's if anybody's in the UK and they remember that, that store. And it was so exciting to go and pick out a car that you actually actually get to construct yourself. So build all the components and put them together. And so all growing up, I, I definitely was more of a tomboy and I enjoyed all those kind of things. And I was never dissuaded about it. I was never told I couldn't do that. I was always encouraged to just, I could do whatever I wanted. That was essentially my parents' thought processes and that's how they talked to me. So it meant that I didn't have any closed fields that I could operate in. I had everything was open. And if you have all that choice, then you get to pick something that's interesting, right? And I kind of like being the expert in my house about something as well so that helped me move towards that a little bit more and my dad was super excited he didn't pressure me or anything at all he just was excited about the fact I would go into tech so he had an idea a lot about what where that could take me because they were super encouraging about it and so you finish the degree and then you throw yourself into software developing and that's where you land and you did that for 15 years I did yeah. So my course was computer science and artificial intelligence, which is a, again, it's a quite different to what we're doing now. When people say AI now, they really mean like machine learning and algorithms and things like that. Back in the day, I was working on something that would you'd call an expert system, which isn't, today, an expert system is pretty much just some algorithmic, some coding. It's nothing special. But back then it was, and I would, and my first job was really programming those kind of expert systems for medical software. So GP surgeries would, the idea would be the software that we would have there would help GPs diagnose problems. That's essentially the first kind of tech I worked on. And I did that for about 10 years. And then after being there for that long, I wanted to really up my skill level and I became a contractor. And that enabled me to go to many different companies and essentially many different types of companies as well so different verticals and charity as you said before and and startups and that gives you that's a you learn a lot then and and it gave me again the confidence to then start my own business because I'd seen so many different businesses and so many different ways that bosses operated in effect I saw that they were just like me right they didn't have special superhuman skills or knowledge that I didn't have which is what you think when you see all these amazing companies you think they must know something they're just trying and making it up as a go like everybody else yeah that's what made me decide that's what helped me decide to to also start my own business incredible so you took that and then inspiration to start but you didn't just start I guess sometimes and we all face this as entrepreneurs right you start but you did it pretty much all yourself I want to talk about the pros and cons of having the skill set that you have and being faced with okay so now I want to create a digital business how much of it in hindsight should you have done by yourself and how much of it should you have outsourced okay so with a business like furnish for i think one of the most expensive costs you're going to face in a purely online business is going to be your tech costs and developing an mvp by yourself i think that was very beneficial developing the first iteration extremely beneficial that i could code it all myself i had no and i could do it quickly and i had a complete skill set to be able to provide that but i would say that with the advent of like no code systems where you don't have to have a dedicated programmer to get out your minimum viable product you shouldn't have to do that and it can be very beneficial because you're not being distracted maybe by the tech 
you can focus on the other aspects of the business that you really need to focus on for a business really to flourish, such as the marketing, such as the community building, you know, such as the brand, all of those kind of aspects. I do have a co-founder who focuses on that. So doing it all alone isn't quite right. Building the tech alone, I did, yes. Marketing, I have a co-founder for that aspects of it. And um, we also freelance some of our digital content creation and other aspects of the business that we hire freelancers to do that. So that works quite well. I think the key here is knowing your limits, right? I always find tech is a time game. And and I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but sometimes the, the technology that is being created or the limits that are being pushed doesn't always translate to what the consumer needs at the time. And when I think of, you know, off the shelf packages like, you know, WordPress, Shopify, etc., all exist now. Why would anyone need to code something from scratch? Absolutely. This is the belief. And I think with those products, it depends on your business as well, I suppose. If you are talking about a business that is a product-based business, then I don't think you do need to code that. You just need something to showcase your product, to be able to build your community online around that product. You don't have to code anything from scratch because you're just paying money for something that's already available out there. There's no point in reinventing the wheel. Tech is essential for businesses that are trying to do something maybe a little bit different out there. You're not necessarily a product-based business. You might be a service online and then your service is quite unique to you. And I think also when you, what you find after you do use these some of these products is if you try and do stuff that is a little bit outside of the remit of the tech, that can be very difficult. That can then be um, a little bit of a blocker. And I think that's when people tend to move or gravitate around, away from these no-code options or low-code options. But I would say always wait until then. There's no point because you never know if you'd reach that point. So there's no point in making something completely new or trying to code a site from scratch. Definitely start with those pre-built solutions and only when you absolutely need to do you want to consider recoding something or coding something from scratch and so your your journey into entrepreneurship has has birthed a few things has birthed your role in coding for black females which is a non-profit organization do you mind i guess sharing a little bit more around how that came about and why that's something that's passionate for you actually yes I joined Coding Black Females back in 2017 and I think it was, I just started the business. I had been working and had worked in many different companies by then and I was still faced with that same problem of being the only, well I say problem just because it wasn't a problem until <laughs> I suppose I got to a certain level in my career and I just, I looked around and I thought why don't I see any more black women? I barely worked with any black programmers at all and I hadn't worked with any maybe one or two women programmers and I just thought that how can we be 50% of the population and and or over 50% of the population and I yet walk into a room with 20 men who are all white it didn't make sense to me I knew I was passionate about it I knew there were other women who were passionate about it who looked like me out there I just didn't know where to find them so I had a look at Meetup and I found a group founded by um, Charlene Hunter and we I don't we just used to meet every few months maybe in a room or I, I could only meet up every few months in a room and just talk about how, you know, there are obviously women crying out for this service. And we wanted to also increase the number of black women in tech. And it grew from there. And eventually, beginning of this year, I became the head of training and technology. And yeah, now the community's on growing strong. <laughs> 4,500 members and growing. Where do you find the time? Where indeed? <laughs> We, again, we often ask ourselves this question because we, we, we do have a lot going on. We run events, we 
kind of mentorship programs. We also do recruitment and we do the training and boot camps. And uh, there are now six of us, I think. I, I have to say there's a lot of work that goes on and it's a passion. When it's something's a passion, the danger is you just want to do it all the time and you end up doing it all the time. But that's that's it. That's the nature. It's a passion project for everybody involved. Talking about passions, photography is one of yours. Yes. <laughs> Within your work, would you say that, because you mentioned your love for art and how art was taking up. Um, and I always find it interesting drawing correlations, sometimes accurately, sometimes inaccurately on the show. But it's always interesting how people's passions, especially through entrepreneurship, are almost reflective of their choice of work. So with Furnishful, it's about beautiful objects. It really is, yes. I guess speaking to how that even came about, why furniture? Why that as your beautiful, beautiful focus, as it were? Well, I think one of the main reasons is, again, furniture is incredibly beautiful. You can look at it all day. I love looking at interiors. I like dreaming about interiors. I suppose at a time in my life where I was also actively refurnishing my house and adding things to it. And the experience of shopping online, I found quite frustrating. And I knew if I found that frustrating a lot of other people would too. So the idea that you could, you know, even use something as inspirational as Pinterest to to find all these wonderful objects, these wonderful pieces. And then when you came to actually trying to buy them, you had this broken process of being sent to a non-UK site, if you're in the UK, or a links that didn't work. And it was really, it was a frustrating experience. And I knew I could, tech could solve that. I could build something that would help make that process work or smoother and still inspire people and also allow them to shop it's like you're trying to furnish your house and you need a gray chair and it's like you literally go, go into like a million sites searching for gray chairs exactly google shop does a, a decent job but before that you know and even just the experience of each great chair you come across is different on each site. It really is, yes. We haven't talked about the thing most, I guess, everyone talks about, which is starting up. You know, we all hear of IPOs of, you know, Facebook, all these amazing tech businesses. Sounds like a lot of money. How did you begin? So obviously there was money saved with you doing quite a lot of, you know, the coding, your co-founder bringing in some skills. But the reality of starting up a tech business and having that visibility online, I think sometimes people assume tech businesses are cheaper for some weird reason. <laughs> but I guess you can talk us through, I guess, the economics of it. How do you navigate that? Or how did you navigate it in the beginning? And how are you navigating that today? We are a purely self-funded bootstrapped business so we haven't taken any external money at all and the benefits for us with that is that we have gone our own way our own direction we have been led by what we believe our users would want and I think one of the main reasons again talking about the benefits of coding something yourself the reasons that we could do that is that I built this system myself with my own tech skills arguably learned over 15 years and it would have been far more expensive to build something like this using external contractors or external an external team and we would have had to probably have external funding because you know it's a, it's a site that does a lot and it does a lot automatically and through automation because I had the skill set to be able to do that and because of the way I've coded the site it allows me to still be the head of coding black females and start another business and I'm not predominantly fixing things or needing a team of people to do things. And that was a conscious effort on my part from the beginning, having, you know, the experience and exploring and, and looking at what other people were doing and how these kind of systems could be built. 
So, yeah, I think, again, and then the marketing side of the business, my, my partner, my business partner had already sold a business. He also had an online retail business that he had run for a number of years. So he had that expertise and experience that he could bring into it. And that lowered the cost. But a team of people trying to recreate this without the skill set we had would, I would say, 100% need external funding or self-funding themselves have a decent amount of, to fund it. Let me put it that way. So at the moment, the business pays for itself and some external and some external freelancers that work for us and it runs pretty much with very little technical input from me. <laughs> Segwaying into I guess DigiBright which was I guess your pre-pandemic brainchild and creating a platform that offers digital education and support for entrepreneurs. You can tell me a little bit more about it and the importance of it actually because I think the importance is probably more pertinent than the why. Yes. I think it's really needed. Well, Digibyte, it came out of me being part of a, an accelerator program for women entrepreneurs who called Positive Plant pre-pandemic. And this, this group, one of the reasons I joined it and I loved it was, it was women over 35 who had an idea or were already having established business. And it was, it was going to help them take their businesses to the next level. And one of the reasons I thought was really interesting and strong is that the idea that for the women who were looking for funding, Having those kind of businesses funded has been shown to put money, more money back into the economy than maybe having some of these younger tech startups that explode, you know, everywhere. They had a social impact, these businesses. And I, th I thought that was a really, really interesting point and a, and a fascinating and very, very needed program. But what I also learned on the way was a lot of women struggle with getting their technology up and running. Maybe not so much anymore if you have, you know, some knowledge of the no code options that are out there. But if you have anything that has more of a technical requirement, but it's still a fantastic idea that you have thought of. Some of the stories I'd heard were quite distressing, you know, like women paying thousands of pounds for software systems that have been developed that they were then told they didn't own. Uh, developers upping sticks and not helping or, or producing code that wasn't of yep, any kind of quality. <laughs> yes. That fits normal. Yes. Yes. So that frustrated me. And as somebody who, again, another passion project, I find it so upsetting to hear that people have gone through that because it's so unnecessary. And I consider coding and development a craft and you should be just as proud of it and respectful of it as you would any other craft and so when I hear people doing things like that kind of underhand things it, it does really frustrate me and so I had I've had this kind of I don't know this need to help with that this real need to kind of help just inform women help them upskill help them feel confident and it kind of puts in mind where with cars and going to get your car maintenance done or your MOT or something and not understanding what was going on and feeling like, I don't know, is this person telling me <laughs> that this cost is is real? I, I don't know how to judge that. And I want to give them like a mini kind of tutorial, mini CTO training, essentially, so that they feel comfortable and confident in the conversations that they're going to have. And so that's where that came from. Incredible. I, I can't tell you how many a time I have had bad experiences. And I think my friends included, who are also entrepreneurs with, you know, websites, building solutions around your business. And literally you're beholding to the technical person that you brought on. You've paid a deposit, you end up with a product you don't want. And it is quite a common problem. I, I know that 
oftentimes, you know, you then end up pulling your sleeves up and, and spending hours on YouTube and Googling, trying to create your solutions yourself in the middle of having paid somebody to do it. And it's a constant battle to achieving the end product that you thought you were getting versus what you end up getting. And I guess there's, there's something to be said about, you know, standardization where people like Shopify have really come in and, and changed the market when it came to that, right? So, you know, they've created peer-to-peer communities that constantly improve the product itself. But I do know the pain and cost and stress of being in a dynamic with a web developer and wanting to run your head into a huge block of stone. And there's nothing you can do. It's it's the most disempowering experience of entrepreneurship I think I've had when you're wondering how you're paying for a service, but you're still beholding to the person, their time, their desire to even just execute the job where you have a timeline in, in place. If you had to give three key things that our listener needs to be aware of in that situation. So I'm an entrepreneur. I would love to build a site and... I'm faced with this decision to hire a developer to help me. So I think the very first thing I would say is do your research about that developer. Make sure, just like you would with any kind of person you're hiring, make sure their references check out. Make sure that you can get some a decent amount of feedback about the previous work they've worked on. Make sure they've actually worked on something similar to what you want them to build. Make sure they have that experience. When I am also talking to the entrepreneurs out there, the advice I also give them is about, like I said, the no code option before. Make sure you know what you want and make sure you have a clear understanding of what you want before you go in there. Because if you ask a developer to build something for you that you don't know what you <laughs> you want built, what are you going to really end up with? So have a very clear understanding of what you want built and examples maybe out there in the world of what you want built so you can point them to it. The other thing is if you are getting a solution built that is off, not off the shelf, understand a little bit about where you can protect yourself when it comes to things like where the code is stored. So ownership, have some sort of agreement there so that you have some way to get to ensure that you own that code. One of the things I'm also cautious about is when you're outsourcing, maybe to a developer that isn't in the same country as you, make sure you understand the laws and rules around that too. If you're in the UK and you're outsourcing to India, what is the kind of comeback for when your code disappears or that person disappears? So be aware of that as well. And that might be one reason why you might want to pick a developer in the same country as you, possibly, especially if you're new to the game. (laughs) Thank you for that. But I think ultimately, how do you protect yourself from not ending up with less than what you think you're going to end up with, especially when you then maybe you get somebody else on board and then you find out the other person just literally use sticky tape to build your solution because that too does happen. Yes. So there are two things you can do with that, I say. Um, And this is something that we employ in the software industry anyway. There's a process of making sure that it goes a little bit back to defining what you want, making sure you know what you want, and then having seen something as quickly as you can. So don't wait two or three months before you see your product. Don't let them code away in, in, in the dark. Get them to release regularly the product so you can review it. Because the earlier they release, the earlier you know 
<laughs> what they're building. You can see what they're building. You can have feedback for them straight away. And that's the other thing. Monitor it closely and give regular feedback. And also hold back. You, again, you said you pay your deposit. Don't pay everything up front. Pay according to what they deliver, even. You will get that when your the functionality for that has been specified has been delivered. And potentially, if you can, get somebody to review that code because it's not going to be as big a task, hopefully, as building it. So that might be the idea when you're having somebody else come in, they will be reviewing it as well. So if it's going to be a case of a company's building it, they're going to hand it over to somebody to maintain, make sure that person who's maintaining is going to be there from the beginning and is asking questions, is getting to know, is giving that feedback. It's really about feedback early and quickly and communication. That's what makes a, a, a software delivery project successful. And essentially you're your own CTO. So you've got to be that person giving that feedback, making sure you understand what's been delivered. But the variable is always cost, right? Yes. So when you're a small business owner, this all sounds great if you're a large firm because, you know, you probably have better budgets. You probably have the experience to know that these processes are there. But when you've got budgetary constraints, how do you build that in? So when you have budgetary constraints, I think you can still, because you will have a, a, a particular budget that you have specified for the work that's going to be delivered. So the, everything I've said still applies. It's just that you don't have a team of people supporting you to make sure that, you know, you're communicating regularly with your developer, you're seeing the output that they have. It's you. You have to communicate regularly with your developer. You have to see the output. And potentially, this is the other thing I've been thinking about. It's just a way of getting a service that can review people's code that isn't actually developing. That kind of a service to allow you to go and maybe get your code developed anywhere, but somebody can at least check it for you and check that it's all on track would be probably be very beneficial. I don't know if there's anything out there. There you go. There's a free idea for anybody, any entrepreneur <laughs> out there <laughs> who wants to offer this service. But something like that could be kind of really, really helpful because I know, you know, a lot of people have that skill set, the ability to look through and check that kind of code for you. Again, it's all about budget then, isn't it really? So yeah, if you don't have that, you just have to make sure you are reviewing what is outputted and making sure you're testing it yourself regularly. Testing is the key. Make sure you test it on and everything, every system that you can possibly, if you're a lone, lone entrepreneur. You've um, managed to carve out a career now that spans across your interests. What is your hope, especially for black females in tech? What is your hope for that, especially in Africa? Because you know, there's this conversation around, you know, the penetration of the internet, possibilities in terms of income disparity and, and, and what coding tech can present for the average African black female. What are your thoughts on that? I think coding generally anywhere in the world is just a great source of income, essentially. And so it can help incredibly with those kind of income disparities that we as women face all around the world in comparison to men. But I think for me, what I can see and what I really hope for, and what one of the things I'm working for in most of aspects of, of anything I do is to increase female leadership, because that's really, especially in tech, that is really what is missing, or at least low in number there. More women who are making those decisions, more women in the boardrooms at the top, because I think it's getting a lot better pushing entry-level women. I mean, there could always be much, much more of that. But it's making sure that they don't drop out or lose interest or hit that glass or concrete ceiling and push on to, those, to the next level and be able to influence 
the next generation, the next tech revolution. So that's really what I'm thinking and I'd love to see. That's across the world, right? <laughs> really. Amazing. Well, where can anyone find you? So, uh, yeah, I'm available on Twitter, FWOKUMNI at Twitter. I'm also uh, LinkedIn. They can find me there. And uh, if you're a black woman who is really interested in getting into programming, Coding Black Females is around. And if you want to learn how to navigate the big bad world of websites developers, then yeah, Digibrand is also available for you. <laughs> available on LinkedIn and Twitter. <laughs> Amazing. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Afia, for your time today. And it's been great having you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Third Culture Africans. We are building a community of leaders and game changers and would love you to join in the conversation on thirdcultureafricans.com. Subscribe for news, for tips and more useful resources on today's topic and more episodes to ignite and inspire your entrepreneurial journey. Carry on the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Third Culture Africans. Your ratings and reviews are important to us, so please leave one on your favorite streaming platform and help us amplify our voices. Until next time, you are valid, you are strong, and you are just getting started.